All right, good to see everybody. Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Now, in our study in the book of Revelation, we have entered into chapter 7, which is a parenthetical chapter. As we came to chapter 6, we said it contained the seven seal judgments. As I've already pointed out, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. That's in chapters uh, 8, chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 19. And then the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowl judgments. We'll see those in chapter 16, verses 1 to 21. And again, guys, I believe that the seven seals uh, in chapter 6 contain all the judgments of God poured out upon the earth all the way to the end when Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Just so you understand that, all right? Now, after the sixth seal judgment, there is a break. It's chapter 7. It's a parenthesis. After the sixth trumpet judgment, there is a long break, a parenthesis that goes from chapter 10 through chapter 14. And the idea is to review, to amplify what has taken place on the earth during the tribulation period up until this point. So Revelation 7, as we said, is a parenthesis or a pause, if you will, to help us catch our breath in preparation for the greater and more catastrophic trumpet judgments that are about to be unleashed on the inhabitants of the earth. So let's back up to verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, something big is coming. And as I just alluded to, it is the start of the seven trumpet judgments. And so this chapter, in some ways, is preparing for that next phase of God's judgments. These judgments become progressively more intense, more catastrophic, uh, and closer together. Uh, act like a woman in, in labor. We've talked about that, okay? So something big is coming. Uh, the sixth, the, the up until the sixth seal, we've seen that so far. But uh, verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. The question that has filled libraries, commentators have written furiously, who are the 144,000? Many Different groups have claimed to be the 144,000. We're reviewing a little bit from last time. We haven't met in three weeks, so, you know, with the holiday and we were on vacation. So just to quickly get everyone up to speed, many different groups have claimed to be the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Historical Mormonism, Seven-Day Adventists, the Worldwide Church of God folks, and others have all claimed to be the 144,000. Most Bible scholars regard the 144,000 as either uh, speaking symbolically of the church or 
referring to converted Jews who get saved during the tribulation period, otherwise known as tribulation saints. Now, guys, this is not a small issue in that if the 144,000 are symbolic of the church, it means that the church is definitely going into the tribulation period, which I firmly reject. I firmly do not believe that. Look, we've already covered this in some detail, but let me just repeat that I really don't understand the confusion. I really don't understand the confusion. I think the Holy Spirit makes it crystal clear who these people are. Let's read verse 4 again. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Listen, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. 144,000 Jewish believers will be marked and sealed by God as his servants, his evangelists, during the tribulation period. Now, to further clarify, because the Holy Spirit knows we're such dunderheads, okay? I mean, you know, he loves us. God loves, thank God he loves blockheads. Here we are. Um, but to clarify for all those who still might have some doubts as to the identity of the 144,000, the Holy Spirit goes on, listen, in tedious detail to make it more clear by listing. The first time I read this, I thought, Lord, why? It's Why? I mean, did you have to do this? Well, I didn't realize at the time I first got saved and started reading Revelation what the Holy Spirit was trying to combat. He was trying to combat all those who would try to allegorize the passage and say, oh, no, no, it says Jews, but it's, we're, it's us. You know, it's the Holy Spirit goes, okay, well, here we go. I'll, I'll make this as clear as I can possibly make it. Let's read verse 5. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 12, were sealed. These are 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Worldwide Church of God folks, all right? I'll tell you this, um, or any other group that claims to be the 144,000. Next time you get a knock on your front door, and it's somebody there from the watchtower who claims to be the, one of the 144,000, just ask them, which tribe are you from? That kind of makes their eyes go sideways. You know, it's like, I mean, what do you mean? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, one, one of the 144,000. What tribe are you from, right? Look, one of the most important issues, now I'm going to spend a little time on this. Some of you might be like, do we really have to know this? Yes. Yes. Okay? Believe me when I tell you, yes. All right? If you don't understand the proper place of Israel in world events, you are not going to interpret your Bibles properly. And I know I'm speaking to the choir here, okay? But I'm talking like so many groups do not have a proper understanding of Israel and uh, any role that Israel might play in the future, in the program and plan of God. 
they ha are completely misinterpreting their Bibles in so many ways. Can I just give me a little latitude tonight to, to try to kind of circumvent all that confusion and get right to the heart, okay? One of the most important issues in Revelation 7 is that it deals with God's future plans for Israel. Critical topic. God's future plans for Israel. There are many groups that promote the idea that since Israel rejected her Messiah, she forfeited the promises God gave to the nation under the Old Covenant, and now the church has taken her place and has inherited those promises under the New Covenant. Israel, they say, is out of the picture. Out of the picture. It's been replaced by the church in the plan of God, something they call, or actually we call, they don't like this term, something called replacement theology. Israel forfeited its place in God's program. Israel rejected her Messiah, so God has pulled her out of the program, tossed her away, and now the church has been plugged in. We are spiritual Israel. We have now replaced Israel. That's why it's called replacement theology. It goes by other names, Reconstructionism, Kingdom Now, but, but those are some of the more common terms that it goes by. However, the main problem with this view, and again, if you don't understand covenants, you know, the Bible says our God is a covenant-keeping God. Covenants are critical to the plan of God. We better understand how they work, okay? The main problem with this view that Israel forfeited their promises because of their unfaithfulness, ideally, or excuse me, um, uh, most the way they were unfaithful was by rejecting their Messiah, okay? But um, the problem with that view is that if you study the Old Testament covenants that God made with Israel, Four out of the five were, listen, unconditional. Four out of the five were unconditional. The Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. They were all unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. That is, this covenant was based on Israel's faithfulness to obey God's laws. Obedience would result in blessings for the nation, and disobedience would result in cursings for the nation. You can read... Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's all laid out there. Of those four covenants that were unconditional, guys, it meant that they were not dependent upon Israel's faithfulness in doing anything. That's the definition of an unconditional covenant. The fact that they were unconditional meant they couldn't be broken because Israel had no conditions or terms to keep. The only faithfulness required was God's faithfulness and keeping his promise to them laid out in these unconditional covenants. As I said, there were four of them. It's kind of like a will. That, in fact, that's what the covenant means. It's a will. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, same thing, okay? But a testament, we talk about last will and testament, okay? Um, a, a unilateral or an unconditional covenant would be like um, your uncle dies and you're invited to the reading of his will. You've been named in the will. And as you're sitting there and they're reading Uncle Harry's will, and to my nephew Jojo, uh, I'm going to leave my, you know, my, my Elvis record collection. Okay? Uh, to my niece Annabelle, 
Uh, I'm going to leave this or that, right? There's no conditions for these people to fulfill to get this, these inherited items. It's an unconditional uh, agreement, a covenant. It's a will. Uh, there's nothing stated that they have to do, no terms they have to fulfill before they can receive this. That's the idea behind an unconditional, what's called a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means one party, as opposed to a bilateral covenant, a two-party contract is the idea. Now, to really understand this, we have to turn to one of the most important passages, and I'm not overstating this, in the entire Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Now, I really ought to jump down to verse 7 and pick it up there, but I just can't help myself. we got to start at verse 1 because there's something I, I have to show you. As long as we're in the neighborhood, okay? We, we have to touch on the first six verses. So Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. I'm just going to call him Abraham as God eventually named him, Okay. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Go back and read chapter 14 and find out what's going on there, okay? Verse 2. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. What he's complaining about is in that culture, if a man had no son, then his inheritance would go to his eldest servant. In this case, a guy by the name of Eliezer, whose by, name, by the way, means comforter. It's interesting because he's the one to go get a bride for Isaac, a type of Christ, Eliezer being a type of the Holy Spirit. But that's a different study. I don't want to get too sidetracked, okay? Um, so Abraham is saying, Lord, you know... You, you blessed me with so many things financially, materially, but I have no son to pass it down to. I'm going to leave it all to my, my eldest servant, Eliezer. That just ain't right, Lord, is what he's saying. God says, calm down. I'm t I'll take care of it. Okay, verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall, Eliezer shall not you know, be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him, to Abraham, for righteousness. This verse is without a doubt one of the greatest in the Bible. And again, I am not overstating that. For it lays out the foundation for the greatest doctrine of the Christian faith, justification by faith apart from works. Martin Luther said, This was the foundational doctrine of the church, without which, he said, the church wouldn't last a single hour. End quote. This verse is so important, it's so critical and having a firm foundation of every other doctrine that affects Christians now, it is quoted in full three times in the New Testament. Romans 4, verse 3, Galatians 3, verse 6, and James 2, verse 23. In fact, all of Romans chapter 4 is an exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. Turn to Romans 4. Keep your hand 
your finger here in Genesis 15. But let's jump over to Romans 4 for just a minute. Because in this, well, verse 3, Paul quotes again from Genesis 15, verse 6 to make a point. In fact, the whole chapter uh, is an explanation um, of this one verse in Genesis 15, verse 6. Paul says in Romans 4, verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, he's trying to refute the Jewish thinking that it's only by works are we made righteous, the keeping of the law, uh, being circumcised. The Jewish people were taught by the rabbis, and they fully believed that to get to heaven, kind of like some embraced water baptism. But the Jews believed that circumcision was essential for salvation, that without it, a Jew couldn't be saved. And Paul goes on to make the point, again, I'm heading down another rabbit trail, but Paul goes on to make the point that Abraham was declared righteous by God in Genesis 15, 6, 17 years before he was ever commanded to get circumcised by the Lord. And Paul's point is circumcision does not save. It's faith alone is the idea. But he said again, verse uh, verse 3 of Romans 4, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is a very important word. You should underline it. The word accounted, I'm reading out of the New King James, the word accounted in Romans 4, verse 3, is the Greek word legizomai. This same word is used 11 times in Romans 4. Translated counted in verse 4 of chapter 4, accounted in verses 9, 10, and 22, and imputed in Romans 4, verses 6, 8, 11, 23, and verse 24. It's all the same Greek word, legizomai. It is a banking term, a banking term, and it literally means to put to somebody's account. Like when the government recently put to my account. As I woke up one day and opened up my financial program, and there it was. Uncle Sam had tiptoed into my bank system and slipped a little, a little thing in there for me and my wife. Of course, what the government giveth, the government taketh away. Okay? Just, I'm going to throw that out there. But okay. To put to one's account. Now, this becomes the crux of Paul's argument, not to mention the foundation upon which our salvation is built, that the, listen, don't miss this, I'm sure you know it, that the righteousness that gets a person into heaven is not earned by good works, but is imputed, in other words, put to their account by God, in response to their faith as to who Jesus is and what he did for them on Calvary's cross. That's the gospel, folks. We must believe who Jesus really is. That's why he spent so much time in the course of his earthly ministry telling people who he is, not just another teacher come down the pike. He came from the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, and so on. He said, if you don't believe that I am Jehovah God, if you don't believe that I'm the great I am, John 8, 24, you're going to die in your sins. We have to go to hell forever. We have to believe who Jesus is. 
Uh, there's a lot of groups and cults out there that call in the name of Jesus, but he's not our Jesus. Uh, he's the brother of Lucifer. He's Michael the Archangel. He's a created being. He's all kinds of things, but he's not our Jesus. He's not the one who created all things. The eternal God who became man and dwelt among us. That's our Jesus, right? We have to believe who he is. That's part of the gospel. Then we have to believe what he did. Die on the cross for our sins. Now, back to Genesis 15. Here's what I really want to zero in on now with regard to covenants. And I'm thinking right now the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So verse, uh, verse 7. Then he said to him, now God's talking to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees. That's modern-day Iraq. Okay, that's the cradle of civilization. That's where everything started. Somewhere around where Iraq is today, okay? Uh, I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees. At one time, Abraham was nothing more than a pagan-worshipping Gentile. Uh, I'm not so sure some Jewish people appreciate that description, but it's true. At, he became the father of a whole new race of people, the Jewish people. Uh, when he crossed over the Euphrates in obedience to God, get yourself out of this land and cross over the till 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 you come to a land I will show you. It's I'm going to give it to you. Uh, many believe that the word Euphrates means to cross over. When Abraham obeyed God and crossed over, breaking away from his family and uh, the earth of the Chaldees, he became the father of a new nation. Okay, um, but. I brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now, Abraham at this point is in the promised land. And God is re recounting to him how he called him out of this pagan environment as an idol-worshipping Gentile and made him a Hebrew. The word, I, should, I, should, I messed that up. One who crosses over, the word Hebrew, I, I believe, is, is literally one who crosses over. And when he crossed over the Euphrates, he became a Hebrew, father of a new nation, a new race of people. Okay? But God is recounting to Abraham how that he gave him this land to inherit. Now, that was part of the Abrahamic covenant. It had different, um, different things attached to it, but this was one of the main things, that God was going to give to Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about, right? Verse 8, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, those animal parts. Verse 18. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, now here it is again, this is the promise that God was making to Abraham. This was the covenant, okay? To give him and his descendants the land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel, all right? Verse 18, on the same day, listen, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land 
from the river of Egypt, the Nile River, to the great river, the river Euphrates. So here we see in Genesis chapter 15, God now enters into a formal covenant with Abraham. He had already made the promise to Abraham. Abraham, you know, and he was a man of faith, but he didn't know God at this point like he came to know God, right? And so he had God's word. Now, for any of us in this room, that'd be good enough, right? God can't lie. If God promises me something, I can take it to the bank, right? Well, Abraham in that culture, he wasn't so sure about that yet. He said, well, how do I know you really mean what you're saying? So now God enters into a formal covenant with Abraham. He made the promise in chapter 15. God's good. His word is good. But Abraham wants something a little more con uh, concrete. Uh, well, Lord, will you sign a contract is basically the idea. Um, so God enters into this formal contract with Abraham uh, by cutting the animals in two. Now, that's the way they did it back then, guys. That's the way they, they entered into a covenant. The word covenant comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut, to cut, which meant it was a covenant of blood or what we would say a blood covenant. The idea was that once the animal or the animals were killed and cut in two and laid apart, okay, so they were laid, you know, on opposite sides of the, of the road, whatever they were going to walk through, um, but once the animal or animals were killed and cut in two, to ratify the covenant, both parties would walk through those animal parts. Again, it was a bilateral covenant, a two-party contract. It was a serious commitment that brought with it a self-imposed curse. That was the idea. Should either of the co covenanting parties break their pledge, they both had terms to fulfill, is the idea. So they would enter into this covenant uh, for something, but they each had terms to fulfill, right? Uh, okay, you're going to paint my house. You're going to charge me $3,000. I sign a contract. If you paint my house, then I fulfill my term, part of the covenant, and I give you the three grand. If you don't finish my house, if you get half of it done and leave it and walk away, I'm not giving you the money because the contract is null and void. You didn't fulfill your part of the agreement is the idea. That's what's going on with these two-party uh, bilateral covenants, all right? But it was even stronger than that. By cutting the animals in two and walking through those animal parts, yes, it ratified the covenant, but it was also you were bringing what uh, in the um, book of Psalms is called uh, a, a kind of like a prayer of imprecation upon yourself. What does that mean? Imprecation is judgment. You're basically, they were basically saying, God, if I don't fulfill my part of this, this covenant, then make me like one of these dead animals torn to shreds or, you know, so, you know that hanging over your head, you tended to want to keep your part of the covenant, okay, uh, and so on. Now, what is this smoking oven and burning torch? Guys, that represented the Shekinah glory, or in other words, God himself. Remember how he led them through the wilderness? Pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That was God's way of expressing himself. That was the Shekinah glory. That was God's presence. The important thing to understand is that verse 18 tells us that, listen, God, God made a covenant with Abraham, not that God and Abraham made a covenant with each other. 
you don't get that, you're not going to get anything I'm saying. Okay? This was a unilateral, one-party, unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. It was unilateral, guys. Because only God passed through those animal parts while Abraham was what? Asleep. So God knocks him out. Okay? I don't know if he spiked the punch and Abraham's out. And while Abraham is in a deep sleep, God in the form, the Shekinah glory, in the form of a, uh, a, a smoking oven and a burning torch passes through those animal parts alone. God and Abraham didn't make a covenant with each other. God made a covenant with Abraham. Very important that we understand it. This meant, guys, that Abraham, and by extension all of his descendants, didn't have any terms to fulfill. They didn't have any promises to keep. It was a promise that God basically made with himself to give the land of Canaan to the Jewish people. The covenant couldn't be voided or annulled. Now, stay with me, because we're going to do something at the end here which is going to make this all relevant to us. Okay? So, you know, just to kind of be the little hook to keep you in your seat. Um, this covenant couldn't be voided or annulled because of the unfaithfulness on the part of Abraham or his descendants because, guys, again, it wasn't a bilateral covenant, not like the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant, Israel had certain terms to fulfill. If you obey me, then I'll bless you. That's my, that's my part of the covenant. Uh, you obey me, I will pour the blessings upon you, and he lists all these blessings. If you disobey me, then here's the curses that's going to be poured upon you. So that was definitely a bilateral two-party contract. Both Israel and God had terms to fulfill, okay? But not here, all right? This was a unilateral and therefore an unconditional contract. One author said it well when he said, and I quote, this was an unconditional unilateral covenant. God, with astounding condescension, was symbolizing that if he were to break his word, he would be sundered, cut in two, like the butchered animals. It was an acted-out curse, a divine self-imprecation, guaranteeing that Abraham's descendants would get the land or God would die, and God can't die, end quote. Another author put it this way, said, and I quote, this covenant God signed alone. Abraham did not haggle with God over the terms. God established the terms and Abraham accepted. Abraham could not break a contract. Listen, he never signed, end quote. His name wasn't on the contract. If it was a two-party contract, yes, he would have had to sign off too. Now, something I must bring up here, and then we'll move on. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 tells us that the covenant God made with Abraham has brought hope to us who are Christians. In fact, he tells us that this hope for those in the new covenant, that would be us, we're in the new covenant, which is also a blood covenant, by the way, right? I mean, who died? An animal? No. No the perfect sinless Lamb of God shed His blood to ratify this covenant. 
again, a blood covenant. But the writer of the Hebrews tells us that this hope that we have, you know, uh, in, in the Abrahamic covenant spills over unto us in the new covenant. Um, in fact, he goes on to say that it provides us a hope, listen, that is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Now, think about those words, all right? The covenant that God made with Abraham, which connects with the new covenant, we'll see how in a second, is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Hang on to that word sure. I'm going to come back to it, okay? You say, well, how? How is this such a blessing for us in the new covenant? Well, guys, the new covenant is connected with the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants, again, called the Abrahamic covenant. You say, in what way? Well, you don't have to turn there, but Galatians 3, verse 29, Paul said, if you are Christ, in other words, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the promise that God made with Abraham called the Abrahamic Covenant, we have been grafted into because as believers, we are the children of Abraham because we're of the same faith that Abraham had. He believed God. Uh, we believe God. And so we have become spiritual Jews. Read Romans chapter 2, which talks about, you know, it's the, the real children of God are not the ones with... Uh, Abraham's blood in their veins is the ones with Abraham's faith in their hearts. When you put your faith in Messiah Jesus, as Abraham did, yes, you become a member of the new covenant, but it reaches all the way back to Abraham and the covenant he made, God made with him and all of his descendants. We are spiritual children of Abraham by faith. I want you to get that in your head, right? So by our faith in Jesus, we are now spiritual descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise that God gave to him and to his children. The ultimate land God promised to all Abraham's children. The ultimate land that God promised to all of Abraham's descendants who believe in the promises of God. Again, that's what makes us uh, spiritual children of Abraham. This ultimate promised land. Yes, we understand the land in modern day Israel, okay, which they never really inherited all of it. We'll talk about that more in a second, okay. Um, but this, the promise of a new homeland that God gave to Abraham, the short-term partial fulfillment was that piece of ground in the Middle East that we call Israel. But ultimately, guys, the ultimate promised land God had in view was heaven. Heaven, Okay. Although during the millennial kingdom, Israel is going to possess more land than they've ever possessed. All the land God promised the Jewish people. Uh, it was stated in, I believe, uh, Deuteronomy in one place, but uh, God then um, uh, zeroes in even more in Joshua chapter 1. The land that God said that he had given to Israel, okay, went from the Mediterranean to the west, all the way to the Euphrates in the east, all the way from Lebanon to the north to the Negev in the south, about 300,000 square miles. 
Israel has never inhabited more than 10% of that. What does that say to us? I'm going to throw something out that has haunted me. Okay? I'm convinced that we as believers only inhabit and enjoy a small fraction of the promises God has given to us. Because we don't believe. Or we're satisfied, so I don't want any more. I don't need any more. What do I need? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm comfortable where I am. I got a nice little house and family. I come to church. It's nice. My, my, my life is good. Yeah, but what about the faith and the power to serve God in great ways? Ah, I'm not really interested. Maybe you've heard it. As long as I get to heaven, that's all I care about. How sad. And because they're willing to settle for far less than God's best, like Israel did. Remember how they got tired of war? Remember at one point they got tired of fighting? And they wanted to settle down and stop fighting? They've been fighting for seven or about seven years after Joshua brought them into the promised land. And so they were tired. You know, they wanted to start enjoying those houses they didn't build and drinking from those wells they didn't dig and eating from those vineyards they didn't plant. They got complacent. One of the worst things that could ever happen to a child of God is where we become complacent. And it's like, God, I'm just satisfied. I don't need any more. And God said, but you've only in, enjoyed a little sliver, a tiny fraction of what I want to do in your life and give to you. Israel only enjoyed about 10% of what God had planned for them. Now, during the Millennial Kingdom, they are finally going to inherit and enjoy all the land God had originally promised to them. But not yet. Not yet. Also, the important thing for us as Christians to understand is that just as the covenant God made with Abraham was unilateral and unconditional, here's where I'm going with this, just as the covenant that God made with Abraham was unilateral and unconditional, so is the new covenant he made with us, both Jew and Gentile, right, the church, through Jesus, through Jesus. Salvation, the promise that God has given to us to give us eternal life, has no conditions attached to it. That would be the law. And we've been delivered from the law. Okay? That's a very important point. I know you guys know that, but I'm just saying in general, there's a lot of folks that don't. A lot of groups that think, no, it's a two-party contract. God has his part, and I have my part. And if I don't work hard and be a good person and go to Mass or light candles and pray rosaries or do what a number of other churches do. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, as you well know. We were taught it was faith plus my works. See, I had, a, I had terms to fulfill. And if I didn't fulfill those terms, it didn't matter what God did. It didn't matter what God promised. He faithfully kept his part. Jesus died for me. But see, now that's not, you know, it's as if from the cross they imagine Jesus saying, almost done. Almost finished. Now I did my part. Come on, I'm rooting for you. Yeah, do your part now. Live that holy life. You know, go to church. Light the candles. Pray the rosaries. Right? Help out in the local food pant. Whatever. You know. No. What do you say from the cross? It is what finished. The work of salvation is over. Now you just need to receive the gift of eternal life. How is that? A cop by faith, which is not a work. 
Read Romans 4. There are those Christians who think that any teaching that a person has to have faith to be receive eternal life, that's a work. It's not a work. Read Romans 4. Paul talks about works versus faith. Just because I reach out and receive a gift, that's not a meritorious act. Nobody praises me for reaching out and receiving a gift. They praise the one who is offering the gift freely. What a generous person, right? If the new covenant was a bilateral covenant, dependent upon, dependent upon God to keep his part, in other words, to give us eternal life, if we kept our part of the covenant, which meant to keep the law perfectly, none of us would be saved. We all, I think we all realize that, right? If God made salvation dependent on us in any way, shape, or form, if it was really a bilateral two-party contract, <laughs> we're done. I mean, all you have to do is look at when God entered into the covenant with the children of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, right? God brought them out of Egypt, proposed the covenant to them. I'd like to be your God. I'd like you to be my people. If, if you accept this covenant, uh, then I'll have Moses go up on top of the mount and I'll Sinai and I'll give you the terms and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, we want that, Lord. That sounds good. We want to be your people. All right, Moses, come up here. Moses, I don't know how long he was up. And was, we know he was up there 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how long it was of those 40 days and nights before the people started building the golden calf. I'm sure it was a couple weeks in. But here Moses is getting the terms of the law and they're already breaking the first and greatest commandment of the law before he even gets down from the mountain. See, that's us, right? That's all of us, right? Lord, I want eternal life. Lord Jesus, I want to be following you. Okay, well, here's the term. Before I, the Lord even finishes explaining what it means to follow him, we're already, you know, worshiping some goofy materialism or something, you know? We know it's not by law. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved. Grace means a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. Right? Romans four sixteen. Therefore it is of faith, receiving eternal life, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure. Here's that word again. Sure. This hope is like an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And now Paul articulates that eternal life is a gift that we receive by faith. And God is offering it to us as a gift so that the promise of eternal life might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, speaking of the Jews, but also to those who are of faith, who are of the faith of Abraham. Now he's talking about Gentile believers, right? Who was the father of us all. The point is that in the new covenant, we receive God's promises of eternal life by believing and then receiving. Isn't that what John 1, 12 says? 1, 12, 
or 13, okay? Um, I believe it's one, one, 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. We are made children of God when we believe in and receive Jesus Christ. That's how we inherit the promise of eternal life, by believing in and receiving Jesus as our Savior. Guys, listen. And then we'll move back into Rome, uh, to Revelation quickly. <laughs> um, if the promise of salvation, now we're talking about God promising, promises that are sure. If the promise of salvation was based on our keeping the law, the promise would be worthless. Think about it, right? Because it would be based on conditions that no one would be able to meet. I mean, let's put it this way. If God said... I promise to give you eternal life if you can jump across the Grand Canyon. Not into the Grand Canyon, across to the other side. I can jump into the Grand Canyon. Okay. If God said, I promise to give you eternal life if you jump across the Grand Canyon, that promise would be worthless because no one could meet that condition. The same would be true if God promised to give a person eternal life if they lived a sinless life. Or in other words, kept God's laws perfectly. Again, that would be a worthless promise because no one could keep or meet the conditions. But if God said, which he did to you and me, I promise to give you eternal life if you believe in my son, based on what he did and not on what you do, now, that's a promise we can warm up to. That's a promise we can get excited about. Because every one of us can believe, right? Every one of us can believe. All people, right? Anyone can, be, can believe in Jesus and be saved. That's why God could promise us eternal life, guys. At the moment we put our faith in Jesus, 1 John 5, verse 13, tells us, because it's based on what he did for us and not upon what we do for him, which is why Jesus said it is finished from the cross right before he died. I've done all the work. I've done all the work. There's nothing left for you to do. It's a one unilateral, one-party covenant I am making. In fact, I'm making with myself. And I'm thinking of Titus chapter 1, where it says that God promised us eternal life. Listen. Before time began. Think about that for a second. God promised us eternal life before time began. Now, if it was before time began, were we there? No, of course not, right? We're not eternal. We were not around before time began. Only God was around before time began. So if he made this promise, who did he make it to to give us eternal life? Who did he make the promise to? To you and me? Like... A two-party contract? We weren't even there. We weren't even in existence. So who did God promise he was going to give us eternal life? Himself. God promised himself. That's the very definition of a unilateral covenant. And if God promised to give us eternal life, like Uncle Harry promised to give Jojo his album, Elvis album collection at the reading of his will... And nephew Jojo had nothing to do to, no terms to fulfill, right? Same thing. God was making a promise to himself 
that when he died, who died? Jesus Christ, God incarnate. I mean, a will isn't active, right? It's not activated until, as Paul put it in Hebrews, the testator dies, the one who has drawn up the testament or the will. Uncle Harry's will was not, you know, was not, um, uh, you know, was not, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You get it, okay? Uh, it was not activated. It, it, was, it was in force, but it was not, you know, nobody could get anything from Uncle Harry's that is in the will until Uncle Harry died. Somebody has to die before the inheritance can be passed out. Jesus died. And when Jesus died, the one who made the promise to himself, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it put God's will into reality. And anyone, and now, and you said, well, yeah, but Jesus, what about all the people that lived before Jesus died in Calvary's cross? See, you said when he died, that's when it was, you know, that's when it all became active. What about all those people that lived before Jesus died? Romans 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ it was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, it was already a done deal. Already a done deal. Guys, if it was by our works that we inherited eternal life, he couldn't have promised us eternal life. Listen, interrupted life, excuse me, uninterrupted life for all of eternity from the moment we put our faith in Jesus. Couldn't promise us that if we had a part to play. All he could have done was to say, well, we'll see if you're good enough, right? We'll see if you're good enough, um, excuse me, we'll see if you live a good enough life to earn the eternal life I am offering. And if at the end of your life you've done enough good works, worked hard enough, you know, done all these works and religious things, then I'll determine whether you're worthy. That's why people who live under that kind of a system, and in Roman Catholicism, one of the key um, doctrines is that Catholics are taught they can never know if they've earned heaven. They've done enough good works until after they die. Catholic theology says that if the Pope himself, he doesn't know. And if anyone, including the Pope, says they have eternal life, not working towards it, but have it already, 1 John 5.13, they are to be cast into the lowest hell. Separated from God forever. It's Catholic theology. How could you live under that system and have any peace? I mean, how, how do you sleep at night? You're coming to the end of your life. You're getting up there like me, okay? You, know, you start worrying, have I done enough good things? And, this, and the really tragic thing is that God doesn't tell them how many good works they have to have because we know God knows there's no good works they have to have. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, help others. That's not going to earn you heaven, but it's just a way of demonstrating that you know God and that you're being a light to those in darkness, right? It's just such a sad way to live your Christian life. Um that you never have any peace. And, and therefore, how could you have joy? The joy that comes from knowing 
your salvation is a done deal. Jesus paid the price. All I need to do is reach out and receive it by faith, which I've done. My life has changed dramatically. I know the Holy Spirit's inside of me. That's the down payment to let me know that, that I'm saved. But those that don't have that assurance, that's a horrible way to live. Horrible way to live. Eternal life is a gift of His grace. Not a reward we earn through our works, right? So, you know, all of this, you know, Genesis 15 was to say that God isn't through with the nation of Israel. Now, if that wasn't enough, and you could do this on your own, Paul the Apostle spends three chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, telling us that God's plans for Israel were not nullified when she rejected her Messiah and that God has a future plan for the Jewish people. Romans chapter... Why don't you turn it real quick and we'll close. Romans 11. After Paul lays out this incredible argument in chapters 9 and 10 that God is not finished with Israel... He opens chapter 11 with the words, I say then, has God cast away his people, Israel? Certainly not. I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He jumped down to verse 29 for the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Oh, but Israel failed. So do I. Oh, Israel lacked faith. So do I at times. Isn't it good to know that even when we blow it, even when we don't measure up to the ideal, we, God still loves us? My salvation is not rendered null and void. Now God doesn't you know, take back what he's given me because it was dependent upon my faithfulness to earn it every day. No. He still loves me. He still works with me. Just like Israel. If, if when you study God's, um, the way he dealt with Israel and is dealing with Israel, that even though they were unfaithful, yes, they rejected their own Messiah and were instrumental in having Rome put him on the cross, kill him. That, even that didn't forfeit God's promises to the nation. Just like when we blow it as Christians under the new covenant, it doesn't forfeit anything that God has promised us. Those promises are unconditional. They are not based on my faithfulness, but upon his. And I'm thinking primarily of the ultimate, the greatest promise of all, the promise of eternal life. How tragic that some Christians come to church every Sunday to get saved all over again. Because their pastors are teaching them that, you know, you go out there, you don't live a pure holy life you lose your salvation you better come back quick and pray to receive jesus all over again every sunday they believe they're getting saved all over again it's just tragic tragic so god is not done with israel praise god he's not done with all of us the church is not really being faithful in these last days Oh, yes, there are definitely good churches and wonderful Christians, and I like to think uh, many in this very room.
But the church overall is not fulfilling the Great Commission. We are, the church is not being faithful. It's not standing up like it should, declaring God's word without compromise, the whole counsel of God. It's become a man-pleasing organization. It's all about the felt needs and how we're going to, the pastor feels he needs to uh, placate people and preach to their felt needs and make them feel good about themselves and bolster their fragile self-image because that's what brings people into church. Well, yeah, okay. Now, but your church is a glorified group therapy session. It's not really, uh, you know, a, a spiritual entity designed to praise God and serve him. Well, I was going to get back into Revelation 7 because that was kind of a long detour. But we were talking about how God is not through with Israel and how that the 144,000 are definitely Jewish believers that get saved during the tribulation period. I personally believe there are going to be 144,000 Paul the Apostles at least on this world. There are many who believe that the ministry of these people of course, when they preach the gospel, many get saved. Then those who have gotten saved preach. And it keeps, it keeps exponentially growing, right? Will probably be, they, many believe, the most fruitful time of evangelism in the history of the world. We'll see. From the balcony, we'll see. All right? I'm not, I'm not wanting to be down here to see on street level, okay? So we'll have to pick it up, God willing, next week. We will be in verse 4. Uh, for the third week, uh, but um, so may God keep blessing our time in his word, never, no matter what detour we take, never waste the time, folks, all right? Father, we thank you for your the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that even through the Abrahamic covenant and the promises you made to Abraham so many years ago, apply to us in many ways. Yes, this promised land, which short-term partial fulfillment was the land of Israel that Joshua led the, the nation into, is also going to be the land that Israel will inherit during the millennial kingdom, but ultimately a homeland in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that we'll be a part of all of it because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.